0: The issues that matter most, right here, The Drew Mariani Show,
1: on Relevant Radio. There is no better way to heal the damage of January 6th than to act so that our constitutional order is preserved for the future. If we do not act to protect our elections, the horrors of January 6th will risk becoming not the exception, but the norm. The stakes could not be higher, so we
0: are going to move forward. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. And here we are on the eve of the anniversary of the January 6th riot at the Capitol. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It's John Harper in for Drew. A little under the weather today, so we'll be praying for him. Our Lady of Good Health, pray for Drew. We'll include him in the chaplet coming up in the next hour here on Relevant Radio, on the Relevant Radio app. Senator Chuck Schumer, of course, the January 6th anniversary coming up tomorrow. So many big stories this afternoon. We've got COVID-19 numbers, why COVID closed the public schools in Chicago The anniversary of that January 6th attack, but the big story today, and perhaps you've seen this, this tragedy from Philadelphia this morning, 13 people, including seven children, died in a row house fire about 6.30 this morning, Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney. Please keep all these folks, and especially these children, in your prayers. Losing so many kids is just devastating. Firefighters got to that row house just a little bit after 6.30 this morning. The flames were already shooting from the second floor. They were able to rescue eight people. Neighbors woke up to the emergency that was unfolding in their neighborhood.
2: I heard screams and came down within 10 minutes and they were already here. I've lived in this area for a few years now, so just coming and going, I've seen people... Again, lots of kids, like they're reporting, so it's really sad. We
1: heard a lot of sirens. I wake up at 6 a.m., and it was like right before that I heard all the sirens going off. And, you know, you wake up in Philly nowadays, you can kind of hear sirens. It's not like it's abnormal, but there were a lot. It's terrible. I mean, I haven't had anything this bad, to my recollection, happen in my lifetime. So it's just... It shocks you to your core.
0: Now, the initial investigation says there were smoke detectors in the building, but they weren't working. They don't know why that row house is owned by the Philadelphia Housing Authority. They say those battery operated smoke detectors were operating during the last inspection. So we'll remember those souls who were lost in the fire and all who were affected when we pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet a little bit later on here on Relevant Radio. And the other stories we're watching on the Drew Mariani Show today, as we mentioned, this afternoon is the eve of the first anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 attack on the Capitol. You heard it unfold on Drew's show just a year ago, be a year ago tomorrow. And as we speak, the Senate Rules Committee is hearing from Capitol Police Chief, Tom Manger on what can be done to safeguard the Capitol, and of course, some of the most significant improvements in how the Capitol Police prepare for events that could attract violence in the future. We now take a multi-phased approach to our planning, to our planning process, with a focus on information gathering, intelligence, asset determination, internal coordination, and most importantly. Department wide dissemination of all intelligence and critical information before all large and high risk events. Now, you know, and you've seen the January 6th House committee that has been in session for a while and they're calling so many people to come and testify. And now they're asking Sean Hannity, the Fox News host, if he would voluntarily respond to questions about his communications with President Trump. And they were text messages, and these newly released text messages revealed that Sean Hannity, this is a week before the riot, appeared to warn Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, that the White House lawyers were on the verge of resigning. This was in protest over Mr. Trump's plan at the time to overturn the election. Hannity texting, and this is a quote, We can't lose the White House counsel's office. I do not see January 6th happening The way he is being told. Illinois Republican Congressman Adam. Kinziger is a member of that January 6th select committee. And of course, as we mentioned, they've invited Sean Hannity to tell what he knows.
2: A text message to a chief of staff that says, hey, call off January 6th seems to imply that maybe there was an understanding that something big was going to happen. I personally uh, said on January 1st that there was going to be violence on the 6th. I don't know if I, you know, envisioned the occupation of the Capitol, but uh, that's going to be important. What did they know prior?
0: And it's one of those things of what did they know and when did they know it, and that remains uh, one of the big question marks on Capitol Hill. They've also asked Vice President Pence to voluntarily come before the committee, and we'll wait to see what happens with that. And, of course, a day doesn't go by when you don't get headlines about COVID-19 that continues to command our attention. And as we go on the air this afternoon at Relevant Radio, the new... Numbers out show that 78%, 78% of staffed ICU beds are filled with COVID patients and others right across the country. But let's put this in perspective. And perspective is really key here because you know that the secular media can just ramp up the fear on any story whatsoever. And this is an important fact to give the COVID story some perspective. Hospital admissions and the daily deaths are notably lower. Again, notably lower. Than they were last year at this time with so many people vaccinated and boosted. So that's a result of the vaccinations and the boosters. The bigger story now are the staff shortages, the staff shortages in the healthcare industry and other professions. Matter of fact, in New York City, 25% think about this, 25% of the EMS force in New York City out of work, out of work. And then there are also new sets of issues. And do you find yourself scratching your head sometime? When you hear what comes from the Centers for Disease Control, it just seems like it's conflicting and confusing information Here's today's installment in that with CDC Director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky.
3: If one is to take an extra step and perform a test at the end of their five-day isolation period, we wanted to make sure people understood how they should be interpreted. If that test is positive, people should stay home for those extra five days. Um, And if that test is negative, people really do need to understand that they must continue to wear their mask um, for those uh, extra five days.
0: Do you think that could be a little more clear? I mean, we've got two years of this under our belt. Do you find that a little bit of, a little bit confusing? And that confusion remains a problem with the CDC and how they share information about COVID-19. I think you and I take a more practical approach, more pragmatic approach in just protecting our own health. And COVID-19, if you're a parent in Chicago and your child goes to public school, boy, you were scrambling this morning because the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike over COVID. They say the classrooms aren't safe. of the teachers are voting for remote learning until January 18th or when the classrooms are safe for the teachers and the children again. And the union criticized Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot's decision to keep the schools open. Listen to a frustrated mayor. This was last night before the union vote. This is uh, Mayor Lightfoot. And I don't have that. I thought I had that. But she's quite upset. And the union is in favor of remote learning. We'll see whether or not that happens tomorrow. And then the other story, and it's COVID-related. and. You kind of scratch your head about, in an economy that's rebounding, why somebody would quit their job. And if you're sitting at home right now instead of working, maybe you're part of the 4.5 million, and it really just topped the charts last November. 4.5 million people quit their jobs. Here's ABC's Rebecca Jarvis. As it turns out, we are a nation of quitters. Four and a half million people in November quit their jobs voluntarily. That is an all-time record.
3: And in particular, it happened in the industries where you have to be there in person to work, travel and leisure, warehousing and transportation sector and in the healthcare services.
0: We're going to talk about that at some point in time. If we have time today, if you're among those 4.5 million who quit their job and just love to hear some of the reasons why. And this, of course, as the economy is rebounding, we see the unemployment numbers starting to go down. And there's President Biden with the continued uphill battle on Capitol Hill trying to get his Build Back Better agenda passed. And one of the reasons the plan and Congress in general is just gridlock. That's nothing new in Washington. It's gridlock because of the filibuster. And the filibuster is something that's been around since the early 1800s, and it's the Senate rule that acts as a 60-vote supermajority for most legislation. Here's the president. I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. I want to get them done consistent with what we promise the American people. And when it comes to the filibuster, the Democrats are calling for its removal. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell wants the filibuster to be preserved. And thus the gridlock when we look at legislation such as voting rights and other elements of the economic initiatives that are up on Capitol Hill. Let's unpack this right now with Jason Sneed, who's the executive director of the Honest Elections Project, which you can find online at honestelections.org. He previously spent 10 years at the Heritage Foundation, including working on their election fraud database, a tool aggregating proven instances of voter fraud from around the nation. Jason, welcome back to The Drew Mariani Show. It's good to meet you. Well, it's good to be back and good to meet you as well. Uh, If you were a betting man, (laughs) and I don't know if you want to put any money on what happens on Capitol Hill, what do you think is going to happen to the filibuster? I mean, we've just been going back and forth on this to the point where it's just exhausting.
1: Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't want to put money down on what Congress may or may not do. But um, I I think that for the moment, uh, what you're seeing is political theater. I think that what you're seeing is um, uh, just a, a, another reach for a shiny object by politicians of the Democratic Party in Congress who aren't able to advance other aspects of their um, agenda. And so they're doing this performance art, really, trying to show yeah. their base that they're fighting on the filibuster, because that really is you know, one of, if not the only card that they have to play. And it really comes at the end of a, a solid year now uh, of efforts, particularly on the left to try to amp up pressure to pass what they call uh, voting reform, but which is, is, is really an attempt to rewrite voting rules nationwide and I would argue to actually build in partisan advantage into the process. Um, and, uh, and so they're trying to create this sense of outrage, the sense of urgency to justify passing that bill. And when the bill fails, they want to get rid of the filibuster, which, of course, would change the way that Congress operates and has operated for about two centuries.
0: If the filibuster, and let's talk about how Congress might operate without the filibuster, and again, as we mentioned, it goes back to the early 1800s, if that were eliminated, how would we see things change, and how would affect how would it affect our lives across the country? Well,
1: I, I really think that this is one of those changes where you can't predict um, what the outcome would be. It would be... Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think it would be a, a titanic shift in the way that Congress operates, requiring that uh, most pieces of legislation have to get 60 votes, which is a supermajority, of course, to pass uh, muster in the Senate has a lot of advantages when you're talking about building in stability, bipartisanship, and compromise into the process, because very seldom do you live in a world in which one party has 60 votes in the Senate. Right. That's happened right. from time to time, uh, but it's very rare, and so you have to reach across the aisle, neither side gets everything that they want. But of course, that also makes it less likely that we're going to get into a ping pong dynamic where one party takes power and does everything. And then the other party comes into power two years later and undoes everything. and goes in the opposite direction, which no one really wants for all sorts of reasons.
0: When you talk about no, Jason, as you talk about, as we talk about the filibuster and you know whether or not it comes or goes with Jason Sneed here on the Drew Mariani Show, you talk about reaching out across the aisle and uh, just after the Democrats took control of both houses looking at the Senate, which you know, moves slower than the House of Representatives, a minority leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, extended that olive branch to Chuck Schumer saying, well, OK, let, let's share power here. Let's get things done. And that was uh, and that was turned down well that's right and 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 it's
1: important to note as as you just brought up that we are living in a world where there is a fifty fifty split. If you listen to the rhetoric which uh which democratic leaders are using to to try to to build the case to get rid of the filibuster you would you would sound or you would come under the impression that they have you know, fifty eight or fifty nine votes and there's just one single solitary holdout in the form of Joe Manchin and that the American people have roundly voted for their their platform. But that's just not the case. It is evenly divided. Uh, which is, I think, certainly indicative of the attitudes of the American populace generally. And so this is one of those instances where, you know, you should understand that a check in the system, which we all went to to, to high school and, and yeah. college, we learned about checks and balances in civics class, right? Well, I think that we all just need to recognize that checks don't just work to stop the other side. They work sometimes to stop us too and there are good reasons to pump the brakes and not just simply embrace this uh, 50 plus one majority. You get to change anything you want, and and it becomes a raw power grab.
0: Hashtag checks and balances, Jason. What are some of the ways to modify the filibuster without eliminating it entirely?
1: Well, there's uh, some discussions that are ongoing, and there are a few rules changes that uh, that folks have have you know put forward, including Joe Manchin, kind of uh, you know intimating that he's considering certain changes right now but one of the important dynamics to keep in mind here is that if you're trying to reach for a compromise on the idea of keeping or eliminating the filibuster itself, you're really setting the stage for its elimination. And you don't have to look very far into the past to, to see that when you when you do start to chip away at the filibuster as an institution, you set a precedent that it will continue. Look at what happened with judges. You know, Democrats got rid of the filibuster for lower court judges, and that created a sort of rolling tide where we got rid of the filibuster for uh, executive branch appointments, we got rid of it for the Supreme Court, you know, Democrats regretted that decision, but it started with what seemed like a small thing, and it amped up to the point where mm-hmm. we got rid of the filibuster in the Senate for the Supreme Court, which has obvious national implications. Right. So there's really no rules change that you can easily contemplate without seeing it setting a precedent that whenever we get very passionate about one thing, we'll just create a carve-out for this or change the rules for that, and eventually it becomes the, uh, the, the exception that swallows the rule.
0: You've heard about the changes in the filibuster, or at least the discussion about changing the filibuster. Our conversation on the Drew Mariani Show with Jason Sneed, the executive director of the Honest Elections Project, 888-914-914-9, 888-914-9149, If you were on Capitol Hill, would you vote for or against the filibuster? Keep it, get rid of it. What do you think? 888-914-9149 as we continue with Jason on the Drew Mariani Show here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com/forester. Your life connected. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. John Harper for True Mariani this afternoon with Jason Sneed, the executive director of the Honest Elections Project. You can find them online at honestelections.org. And we're talking about something that you've heard about, debated for such a long time. And that is the filibuster that need to secure 60 votes on that supermajority that you need up on Capitol Hill. Jason, uh, when we talk about Capitol Hill and the common good, they are usually like oil and water, but... Uh, when we look at the filibuster, aren't we really looking at when we just you know strip away everything? These are individual sen- senators who might find the filibuster useful for their own personal power. So it it, it boils down to personal power over common good, good. doesn't it?
1: I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I'm I'm certain that there are instances where senators have used it for that. But let's also keep in mind that uh, you have to get 39 other senators on side with you to sustain that filibuster. And so, you know, there there might be you know examples where senators are misusing this. Although there's other you know rule Senate rules that allow um, individual senators to file objections to bills. But uh, I think that it's much much more commonly used. When, uh, when one side or the other, when they are in the minority, has strong objections to particular legislation. And of course, those objections are, uh, are, are being heard on behalf of of tens of millions of American voters who likely also have strong objections. So it forces a degree of bipartisanship and compromise, make sure those objections are heard and not simply Mm steamrolled. And I think that helps actually to build laws that advance the common good, that advance the public good, and, and will do so in a more holistic and representative fashion than the simple... Uh, uh, you know, majority uh, 50 plus one rule where you would theoretically be able to do whatever you wanted in the legislative capacity.
0: Talking about ending the filibuster, eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. 914 9149 Dave, joining the conversation in Portland, Maine. Dave, welcome to the Drew Mariani Show. You're on with Jason. Keep the filibuster or get rid of it.
4: Uh, I say get rid of it. And Jason, I, the reason I say that, I would have agreed with you prior to the motion's in the state uh capitals around the country, Arizona and Texas, you know, with voting in Georgia with voting rights uh to me that's an existential threat that the Republican party really is not interested in allowing one person one vote and uh to me that's a trump card, I mean, if you pardon the pun um but uh I would have agreed with you prior to those moves that I would not want to see the filibuster go, but that's my, that's what I think. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that that type of nuclear option is, uh, is necessary, but I think it is at this point.
0: Dave, thanks for the call here at 888 9149 Let me just ask you, Jason, one more question here before we move on. And uh, that is, uh, what's it going to take to break the – and this is the million-dollar question here – is to break the gridlock. Because, you know, we see this happening no matter who's in power. Democrats in power. Republicans in power. And it's, uh, you know, the other side just trying to trip up the other side. And, and I understand that it is political theater. But, you know, when is this going to end?
1: Well, that is the million dollar question, and uh, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, Unfortunately, I think that we find ourselves in a political era where the the performance art of this, the spectacle Mm -hmm. of this, uh, in many ways outweighs either the truth or outweighs um, a, a desire to actually find common ground or achieve anything. And it becomes a lot, I think, more palatable in the minds of um, a, a lot of people to own the other side rather than work with the other side. Right. So there's, you know, there's a a, a, a dynamic, I, I think, that has emerged that needs to shift and, and, and change. And if I can take a second to respond to to a point that the caller just made about, you know, the, this push to make um, voting changes in the states as a justification for getting rid of the filibuster Uh, you know i understand the concerns and i've been um, uh, engaged in the debate over these laws for uh, for the better part of a year now and we have to keep in mind that when you look at you know some of the most contentious aspects of these laws you know voter identification requirements Mm -hmm. and protections for for absentee mail-in ballots and, and other measures these are, 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 are profoundly popular with Americans of, of all political stripes. Uh, you know, when you t- when you ask the question, do you think that you should have to show a photo ID to vote? It's an 80 plus percent issue. Uh, right. Two thirds right. of people who voted for Joe Biden for president think that, uh, that you should have to show a photo ID. And when you contrast that with uh, a move like getting rid of the filibuster, which would which would almost be akin to, to changing the U.S. Constitution, is deeply embedded in the fabric of our political institutions, um, to, to undermine and, and, and actually counter wildly popular laws like that. And I think you have to ask the question, are you you know essentially hindering democracy in order to, quote-unquote, save it? And that's a question that, um, you know, we're going to continue to debate, but I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that these laws, while, while we might have issues with some parts of them, are, are roundly popular. And we should be careful, I think, about saying, you know, we're saving democracy while we're ignoring what 80 or 85 percent of voters say they want.
0: Jason Sneed, thank you so much for your perspective and your wisdom on this issue that we hear in the news almost every day, and that is about the filibuster. Whether it stays or it goes, the debate will continue. Jason is the executive director of the Honest Elections Project online at HonestElections.org. Jason, thanks so much. I'm sure Drew will be having some more conversations with you about this issue as we go through 2022. God bless.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: We'll be praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet that's coming up at the top of the hour here on Relevant Radio on the Relevant Radio app. John Harper for Drew Mariani he was a little under the weather uh, today. You could probably hear that by the end of the show. Yesterday his voice was going. He and I had a phone conversation earlier in the day yesterday, and I said, "Drew, are you feeling okay?" And he said, "Ah, you know, I just yeah, I'm not at a, at a hundred percent." And we were talking about so many things, and he said, "You know, I was just in Chicago with my wife Kathy." And, you know, he said, we came home and, you know, a few days after we were in Chicago, there is uh, something from um, from the Chicago police. And he said, I open it up and it's a ticket. It's one of those electronic tickets because, you know, there are cameras every place. And now those cameras can snap if you make a wrong turn or do whatever you want and you get a ticket in the mail. How many? It's not unique to Chicago. How many different cities and municipalities have that out there? Big Brother is watching. And now China China wants to make an artificial intelligence computer. And how many times have we talked about the implications of artificial intelligence with Father Tadpaholchik from the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia? What they want to do is create an artificial intelligence computer that would prosecute you if the artificial intelligence computer thought you committed a crime. Now, you may smile or laugh at that, but that's a slippery slope because look what we can already do with 3D printers and look what we are doing already with artificial intelligence. Let's talk a little bit about that and the fact that Big Brother is watching. Adam McLeod is an associate professor at Faulkner University's Thomas Good Jones School of Law and the author of Property and Practical Reason from Cambridge University Press. Adam, good
2: afternoon. Welcome
0: back to The Drew Mariani Show.
2: Thanks, John, for having me. I appreciate it. Did
0: you ever get one of those photo tickets and you wonder, well, how did they, where did this come from? I don't remember going through that red light. And you don't fight it, right? You pay the $100 because how can you fight it? You can't even fight those things. So, you know, what is this? You can just imagine the slippery slope if this artificial intelligence computer from China now has prosecutorial capabilities.
2: Yeah, and the report's. Or that uh, at least one regional government uh in China is already putting this thing through its paces um this is a real thing it 's called system two zero six um and it's it 's been programmed to identify and um, actually press charges um on uh, a short list of, of crimes um you know it there's there's a sort of uh, uh well there's there's important jurisprudential principles and constitutional principles at play here. Um, it would be tempting, I think, to to succumb to a couple of reactions right away that I think are not going to be effective responses to this. Um, one is sort of a general sense of creepiness, right? Mm-hmm. That there's a fine line between using intelligent machines to filter irrelevant information on one hand and using them to exercise judgment, right? Especially when so much is at stake. Um, And I I think that sort of intuition is probably quite reasonable, but then we have to acknowledge the fact that many people today, especially our young people, actually have become habituated to deferring judgment to machine, intelligent machines. I mean, you look at everything from traffic camera systems, which you mentioned, to dating algorithms, um, and and increasingly people even even here in the West um, are becoming accustomed to this. Um, and then, the, you know, the second reaction is, well, you know, what about lim- limited government, right? You know, the dangerous cocktail when you combine uh, intelligent technology with coercive powers of the state. Um, but then I think, you know, we have to confront the fact that many people today now think the government should be doing more. Um, doing things that civil society uh, used to do, like providing for the welfare of children. Um, Certainly, as we've seen the rule of law um, break down in many urban areas in the United States over the last couple of years, many people are are legitimately afraid for their physical safety and they'd like to see whatever means can be brought to bear to restore law and order in their communities. And so um, for some people, this actually might be an attractive attractive prospects. So you know, I think we need to, we need to confront that. Um, the, the, you know, what's, the use of it in a place like China is essentially the use of advanced technology combined with a collectivist, collectivist ideology combined with a government that has no inherent limits on its powers. And that's the real terrifying thing. Um, and what, what prevents that for now from happening here in the United States are two really, really important fundamental jurisprudential and constitutional principles. Um, and these go way back, long before the American founding. They're, they go, they, they, their roots are in the common law that we inherited uh, from England at the time of the American founding. The first is the presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. This goes all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures, right? the requirement, for example, of two witnesses to convict, that no one should be punished unless they've been confronted by, by two, at least two other human beings who can testify uh, as to the, the wrongness of their actions. And uh, common law jurists such as Matthew Hale and John Selden express this in terms of a, a judge's or a jury's duty in conscience not to convict the innocent. So that's a really important principle. And then the second one, which is also fundamental to our law and has been all along, is the idea that people shouldn't be convicted without a culpable intention in the law. It's called the mens rea. So it's not enough to have done an act which causes some harm. You must have done it with an intention that is culpable, an intention that is wrongful. Um, And this is such an important principle that we secure it by requiring that people can't be convicted of crimes unless a jury has convicted them. 12 other human beings who can assess the evidence and say, yeah, we think not only did you do this injurious thing, but you did it with the intention to cause harm or injury, and therefore uh, we can be justified in punishing you. Um, Those two principles would sort of stand athwart any attempt to just defer judgment to intelligent machines. Um, But, you know, they're they're very – both of them are very much jeopardized um, today in in different ways.
0: If you're just joining the Drew Mariani Show on your smart speaker or your radio, we're talking about artificial intelligence – But artificial intelligence in a unique way, it's called System 206. It's something that's been developed by prosecutors in China to help assess evidence and determine whether or not a suspect is dangerous to the public at large. So this is artificial intelligence determining guilt or innocence. Now, you may think that will never happen here. But look, you've got red light tickets now. You get a ticket in the mail. So some of that is here already. Uh, But let's talk about And you mentioned this. two, Two points here. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you know, we have generations now that are, let's call them digital generations for the sake of this conversation, Adam, where dating algorithms are just a part of life and you know, using things that are created by artificial intelligence are just a part of life. Does this suggest to you that younger generations of Americans are letting their guard down on this artificial intelligence that, of course, as you mentioned, will never be ethical?
2: yeah, it's certainly a danger for people who uh, spend much of their lives in virtual worlds. Um, I do think that the, the critical line to draw is between using the machine and deferring judgment to. Uh, a machine or an intelligent um, algorithm mm. or, or other machine learning uh, capabilities. Um, so the dating algorithm, I think, is the best example of this. Right. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're using, um, say, an algorithm for the purpose of filtering out um, information that's irrelevant, and as long as the machine has been programmed to know what's relevant, in other words, human beings have to supply the good ends, right? So sure. And the machine then can can identify what's relevant to those ends. Um, But I think increasingly what we see is uh, people who uh, are, are, are trusting intelligent machines to exercise judgment for them. Um, you see this in some advertisements for dating apps. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll use our algorithm to identify a perfect match, uh, which is, you know, scientifically shown to produce a, a more likely, uh, you know, successful romantic pairing or marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you cross a line. And human beings are supposed to exercise judgment on on lots of different factors that machines just aren't capable of assessing. Right. Um, and, 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 then, and then, of course, you've got, you've got the fact that ultimately human judgment comes down to a matter of free choice. Um, and that's something that machines are never cap- capable of exercising.
0: Is artificial intelligence, Adam, gaining a foothold here in the United States generally because, and I know I'm using a broad brush here, because we're just getting lazy? Let the machine think for us?
2: Well, there's always that danger. Um, I think, you know, machine, intelligent machines are useful, Um, And they can be useful for all sorts of things. The technology isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, right? Um, But I do think it's important for us to have a conversation, which frankly isn't happening very much, not nearly as much as it should, about what limits we ought to place upon the powers that we entrust to intelligent machines. Um, and And this is sort of a stark example. the use of an intelligent uh you know artificial intelligence uh to to literally press charges uh, in this province in china um, that's that 's a role that uh, that I think most people intuitively understand ought not to be committed to a machine um uh, and but but then you know we we need some reasons why and you know of right. course the reasons as I mentioned earlier are grounded in these important constitutional principles um that's that 's the sort of conversation where we can we can place boundaries around um, these machines and say, these can be really useful tools as long as they're kept within those bounds. Uh, but we have to identify those bounds and we have to rehabilitate um, some of these principles as well, uh, which, you know, unfortunately are not much discussed and, and less and less are taught um, to our young people in, in schools.
0: With Adam McLeod here on The Drew Mariani Show, we're talking about artificial intelligence. And in this particular case, scientists in China creating a computer that they claim, has 97% accuracy that could prosecute you and put you in jail. Would that ever come to the United States? How could it come to the United States with our Constitution? And uh, just, you know, the simple way of our court system. 888-914- 914-9888- 914-9149. Your interaction with machines with artificial intelligence, are you comfortable with that? Where is that going? 888-914- 9149. Francis in San Francisco, listening to Relevant Radio 12 60 francis uh i know san francisco is uh, just kind of rife. it's
3: a yeah it's
0: rife with with violence (laughs) amazing what's happening
3: yeah well listen you gotta be here i'm from republican from my dad from the 60s and i graduated i have a business i'm economist i've worked for three billionaires i'm now one way or the other i look at the whole picture i read like crazy We had the cameras in Irvine 20 years ago. No Mm -hmm. one would ever see who was there. Every curb, I mean, every light had it. So if you made a left turn and ran over a person, the police department had a central location. Right. Using it for fire, earthquake, 10 years. It was the best city. I'm in San Francisco, which is the nightmare city. Yeah, And I'm a realtor, so I sell everywhere oh, in Chicago. So I've been everywhere. I've
0: been doing this 40 years. So, so, so as, a, as a realtor, is, let me ask you a question. As a realtor and someone who's yes, moving to San Francisco, yes. number one, perhaps the most expensive city. I live and I, I own in
3: here. I've been here. I, you
0: know, per, perhaps the most over. expensive city outside of New York City to yes. live in. You know, what, what's your pitch is, in, 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 in terms of being affordable and safe as we talk about security? <laughs>
3: It is the city that is preventing us to construct. We had 10 years of planning on a vacant parking lot. The supervisors, not the mayor, Mm -hmm. said no way, not in my backyard. And I'm part of YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard, because (laughs) I was a young wife with a baby, and I had a bicycle, and I bought my first house by selling my car.
0: Wow. I
3: may be buying $10 million properties but I work with the lower VA. First sale I made was a veteran who walked in, and I busted my butt, and I still do it, even though That's I good. have a Good for you. you know, no, I have an honest Catholic bringing up.
0: Good. Good. You know, I good. was
3: never, never sued and never lied.
0: And you know, and thus the ethic, ethi- and just the the ethics of this, is, as you talk about Catholicism, because Adam McLeod, this of course is a very big part of it, is ethics as well. And even as we get back to yeah. this uh, this computer, this artificial intelligence computer in China that's got prosecutorial, yeah, hang for on all- for a second, hang on for a second, Francis, that has prosecut- uh, prosecutorial uh, you know powers. It's ninety seven percent accurate, but then there's always that chance it makes a mistake. Who takes the responsibility when that happens in an, in, a, in an instance of artificial intelligence, whatever it is?
2: Yeah, and I think it, you know, it goes to specifically to the question, what does it mean to prosecute or what does it mean to commit a crime? So take one, one example uh, that's, that's named in the story. One of the crimes that this machine has been programmed to prosecute is fraud, now, in our legal tradition, fraud is not just taking something from someone else um, on, on, on dishonest or, or false means. You have to have intended to deceive the person, and you have to have intended for that person to have relied upon your your misstatement. Um, and so it's, fraud is not just a matter of, well, I didn't have the money in my bank account. Um, we don 't punish people for fraud simply because they made a mistake. We punish people for fraud if they did something that 's wrong right. and I, so what 's at stake here is the, the capacity for for human judgment to discern the difference between rightful conduct, permissible conduct, and wrong conduct um, and the moment we hand over that role that 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 facility and say no you know what Uh, we're no longer going to uh use our criminal laws um to punish wrongdoing now we're going to use them for these to bring about you know sort of a utopian order Mm -hmm. um that's a line that we should not be willing to cross and there are very very strong um moral reasons for that um one of which is that we're we're then at that point then just using people we're using people instrumentally Uh, rather than treating every person, even the accused, um, as intrinsic image bearers of God in their own right.
0: Artificial intelligence, perhaps you have used it in some way, shape or form, but it's just getting to be dangerous now because China is developing a computer with artificial intelligence that could prosecute you. You've probably gotten a red light ticket. That's one thing. But where will it go next? 888-914-9149. How far should we go with artificial intelligence? 888 As we continue with our conversation with Adam McLeod, a law professor from Faulkner University here on The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant. Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit RelevantRadio.com slash Forrester. Tell one friend about the Chaplet of Divine Mercy.
4: I'm not holding a small cup, Drew. I'm (laughs) holding an extra large
0: cup. A bucket. (laughs) Every weekday at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Relevant Radio. And we'll pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet coming up at the top of the hour. John Harper for Drew Mariani today talking about artificial intelligence. So in your life, you've probably intersected with artificial intelligence, certainly if you've been on a dating app or if you've gotten one of those traffic tickets in the mail because there's a camera in your community that caught you doing something that you didn't know you did. That's artificial intelligence at work. But it's starting to get a little bit out of control. Look what's happening in China. It's something called System 206, and that's a computer that could actually prosecute you for crimes. They say it's 97% accurate. But again, you're right. What about that 3%? And what about the efficacy of the the ethics of that as well we're talking about that with adam mcleod who's the associate professor and associate professor at faulkner university's thomas good jones school of law and the author of property and practical reason from cambridge university press and speaking of one of those automated traffic tickets you got one of those and you want you took it to court what what happened what's that process because drew got one in the mail we've all gotten them in the mail and we just pay it you took it to court. How did you do that? What happened?
2: Yeah, and let me begin by uh, putting in the caveat, nothing I'm about to say constitutes legal advice, uh, whether or not you pay my uh, my, my fee. <laughs> it's for um, entertainment
0: purposes only, as
2: they say. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I, I, I received one of these in the mail several years ago. I wasn't driving the car at the time, and um, the... the the ticket uh, alleged it was signed by a police officer, alleging under the pains and penalties of perjury that they had probable cause to believe that I had broken the law, and I hadn't, of course. So I decided to challenge the thing in part as sort of a lesson to my law students, um, but also um, on the on the principle of the matter. There there, there are a couple of different grounds um, on which to to suspect that many of these programs are unconstitutional. Um, one of them is that uh, these programs violate basic due process uh, requirements, um, that that the only reason uh, that can justify hauling someone into court and exposing them to cri- criminal or civil liability is if they have committed some legal wrong. Um, this goes back to my earlier point about the presumption of innocence. Everyone is presumed to be innocent and uh, therefore to be at liberty to go about their business, until they've been shown to have committed some legal wrong and in our legal tradition there are basically two kinds of wrongs There are what are called private wrongs that's where i that's where i wrong you personally i defame you or i punch you in the face and then you but only you have a cause of action against me to recover um, damages or some sort of civil remedy and then the other is a, is a criminal wrong and that's where i do something that wrongs the community as a whole uh, I commit uh, uh, one of these wrongs that um, that is that is a threat to the public order, something like theft or murder um, and and so it's it 's fine uh, in fact justifiable and in fact um, reasonable in most communities to have public laws that prohibit people from driving recklessly on the roads um, it 's really important to have traffic regulations but uh, until very recently we 've always thought that um, if if you're going to haul someone into court for driving wrongfully in their car, one of two things should have happened. Either they they acted they committed a private wrong with their car, they acted negligently and injured somebody, and then that person has a cause of action for them against them. Um, or if they've committed a public wrong, well then we better be sure that that they get criminal due process and that there's evidence that's sufficient to show. That they committed, they committed a a public wrong uh, within the meaning of of our public laws. Um, Not only that, you know, their their wheel was a half inch over the white line, um, but that, you know, that they intended to commit a wrong um and and you better make sure that they get all of the attendant due process protections before you expose them to criminal liability uh you know they better be they better be apprised of the charges against them they ought to have an opportunity to confront witnesses against them um all these important due process protections which are really principles of legal justice um which are which are deeply deeply uh, founded in our law and our legal tradition and our constitutional tradition. Um, and, and many uh, of these traffic camera schemes um, uh, uh, mix all this up. Um, the way they get around it in many cases is saying, well, this is a civil action for a public wrong or a or, you know, private cause of action for, a, for, a, for committing a crime, um, which is it's just you know, incoherent. Uh, but it's a way to sort of produce the desired outcome which you know, putatively is law and order, but really what's going on here is revenue for the companies that run these things and the municipalities that administer them, um, without really any regard to the the deeper jurisprudential principles that are at play. Which is, um, you know, look, we 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 ought not be using our our justice system uh, simply to produce um, the de- you know desired outcomes and the order that we want. We ought only be exposing people to criminal and civil liability um, when they've when they've shown, been shown to have committed a wrongful act.
0: We're talking about artificial intelligence here on The Drew Mariani Show. Adam McLeod is an associate professor at Faulkner University's Thomas Good Jones School of Law, and he successfully fought an automated traffic ticket. Of course, that's perhaps where you and I interact with artificial intelligence on a daily basis, outside of some of those other things. Maybe you've been on a dating app uh, is it possible? Is it possible for ethical artificial intelligence to exist, Adam?
2: Absolutely. Um, and, and as I said earlier, if if you keep the machines um, within the bounds that machines are created for, um, which is, for example, filtering information um, or or assisting in uh, decision making in an ancillary. Uh, capacity or subsidiary capacity, um, they they can actually be very very useful. Um, the 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 line that that we ought to be very very careful before we cross is allowing machines to substitute their own judgment for for human mm-hmm. judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, the principles that I that I mentioned, presumption of innocence and and the requirement of a culpable intention, have been eroding for some time. Um, the, pre- specifically, the requirement of culpable intention. Uh, there's been an attack on this principle for over a hundred years, unfortunately, in American jurisprudence, going back all the way to the black codes and and the progressive, uh, the health and safety regulations of the progressive era and the model penal code, uh, public criminal laws, which do not require a showing that the person acted with a wrongful intention. If we can rebuild those principles and, and strengthen those principles um, it seems to me that machines can be quite useful in helping uh uh valid law enforcement efforts um to to locate um acts of wrongdoing. Um but you know but but again the the, the use of cameras and um intelligent machines ought always be a tool used by a real human being who's charged Mm -hmm. with exercising judgment as to whether there's been an act of wrongdoing in this case or not. And thus the key of a real human
0: being is the ethical foundation of that real human being who is entering information into this computer. So there's there's the wild card there.
2: Yeah, well, that's right. The the machines do whatever we tell them to do. Um, But it's not enough simply to enter the information into the computer at the front side. Mm-hmm. We need human backstops uh, at the backside between the the machine's output and the actual decision to uh, to charge someone with a crime. Uh, that ought to be a human decision. That ought not be a machine decision, um, because only human beings are capable of understanding uh, moral and 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 legal culpability. Um, that's, that's, that's the basic, um, you know, fence that we ought to put around these things. More generally speaking, um, yeah, machine, intelligent machines can be very, very useful. You know, I, I'm sort of picking on people who use dating apps, um, uh, but you know, there, there are ways to use dating apps and other ways to use dating apps. And some of them are more, uh, you know, threatening than others. Um, but yeah, if, if you're using machines to help you make decisions, consistent with basic jurisprudential and constitutional and ethical principles um, that you're, that you're very, that you have very clear in your mind, I don't see any problem with that at all.
0: Well, just recently, I mean, look at Google, which laid down a set of artificial intelligence principles, which was really designed to be a guide for their future projects. But even with that, and that was a big controversy that certainly made news, them. a number of people left that company.
2: Yeah, and, and so one of the difficulties of having this conversation now, uh well first of all, we need to have this conversation now. It's right. it's critically important that we discuss what are the what will be the boundaries that we place around the use of these machines. But the problem of course is we live now in a postmodern fractured society uh, where we have so many disagreements about what the what the requirements of legal and, and natural justice are, um that unfortunately it's coming at a time when uh, we, we can't seem to agree on, on basic questions about the common good um, and about what justice requires. Uh, you know, one of the threats to these jurisprudential principles that I keep emphasizing, um, for example, are, are critical theories, post, postmodern theories, which mm-hmm. treat people not according to the culpability of their actions and intentions, but according to their skin color or some other um, right. you know, immutable characteristic. And, and, and how do we
0: eliminate that, that artificial intelligence bias?
2: Well, you can't, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the point of using intelligent machines is to discriminate. Right. Um, and, so, and so then the question is, on what basis will they be allowed to discriminate? I mean, could there be Are racist robots? Machines? Sure absolutely and and you know r- racial profiling people talk a lot about racial profiling by by police officers, and there 's all sorts of um, allegations, some of them more substantiated than others that this is systemic um, in police departments across the united states um, but but look if 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 you 're trying to produce a really effective prosecuting artificial, artificial intelligence machine, why wouldn 't you program it? uh to look for characteristics which correlate with the, the conduct that you're trying to prohibit. Um it's it's not out of the question at all that that you could have all sorts of um racial discrimination, ethnic yeah. discrimination, all sorts of other unjust discrimination packed into the operation uh of these machines. Um in fact that would be, you know, from a from a very narrow perspective the most rational thing to do. Sure, sure. Um so, so this is these are sorts these are the sorts of conversations that we need to be yeah. um you know working through
0: because as the more powerful technology becomes, the more it can be used for nefarious reasons. So how do we keep artificial intelligence safe from adversaries? That's a conversation for another time. We're out of time this time. Adam McLeod, who is an associate professor at Faulkner University's Thomas Goods-Jones School of Law and the author of Property and Practical Reason from Cambridge University Presses. we talk about artificial intelligence that is in your life and mind and growing. Adam, thanks so much for a great conversation. It's been very informative. Thanks, John. Take care. God bless you. We pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet coming up next. And as we continue on this artificial intelligence, some very scary things that are happening in some other countries that we need to be aware of as Catholics here in the United States. We'll talk about that as we continue on the Drew Mariani Show here on Relevant Radio.